politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. The anniversary of the pandemic, at least its official designation as such, two years ago today, and almost immediately, things started to shut down. It's going to disappear. One day, it's like a miracle. It will disappear. Yes. And from our shores, we've, you know, it could get worse before it gets better. It could maybe go away. We'll see what happens. It's hard to imagine this is how 2020 started. But across the world, dozens were falling ill with a mysterious virus that would ultimately change life as we know it. COVID has impacted every decision in our lives and the life of this nation. And I know you're tired, frustrated, and exhausted. We are certainly right now in this country out of the pandemic phase. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of The Progress Network, and I am joined, as always, by Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of The Progress Network. And we are having a series of engaging conversations with what we hope are engaging members of the Progress Network about some of the crucial issues of our moment with the perspective of what could go right. The idea that we are faced as always and as human beings always have been with a series of existential challenges to the world as we know it and to the world as we want it to be, but that we are all in the process of trying to create, I think, the future that we hope for and not the future that we fear we are entering into. And one of the things that has clearly been top of mind and top of body and top of every society for the past two years is the challenges of COVID and a global pandemic that multiple societies, including the United States, have either risen to or failed to rise to in the way in which they could have, should have, or would have had things been different. So we're gonna have a conversation today with two of the people who really have been front and center in both analyzing what's going on and in making public policy in response to what's going on as a way of provisionally two years in, and hopefully we won't have this conversation as a four years end in two years from now, as to what we've learned from what's happened and some thoughts about where that places us going forward. So Emma, tell us a bit about who we're gonna be talking to today. Okay, so our first guest is Nicholas Christakis. He's a social scientist and physician at Yale University, where he directs the Human Nature Lab and is also the co-director of the Yale Institute for Network Science. His work focuses on how human biology and health affect and are affected by social interactions and social networks. He's also the author of Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. Uh, he's one of the first people that I know of who called that the pandemic will last into 2023, 2024, as we see it doing now. And he made that call in that book. Zeke Emanuel is an oncologist and a world leader in health policy and bioethics. He's a special advisor to the Director General of the World Health Organization, Vice Provost at Penn University. He served on the Transition COVID Task Force under Biden and also was an advisor to the Obama administration. He's the founding chair of the Department of Bioethics at the National Institute of Health. And he's also the author with other experts of a recently released roadmap to help guide the US to the pandemic's next normal. So with that, let's have our conversation with Nicholas and Zeke. So I'm so excited to be having this conversation with uh, both of you and, of course, with Emma today. There has been nothing more front of mind and front of all of our collective experiences over the past two years than the COVID pandemic. And 
one thing that I am chronically struck by and remain struck by, but I don't think we will digest fully for years, is the degree to which for all else that this was, it was the first time in collective human history that that all humans on the planet simultaneously experienced the same crisis in real time with transparency and visibility into how other groups of human beings were also dealing with the same crisis. You know, not World War II, certainly not the Black Death, all this enhanced by the communication techniques and technologies that have become so prevalent. And that alone has shaped our collective understanding of what all this is in ways that I don't think we can fully grasp right now, given that we are still partly in the midst of this. And it was such a new thing. I'm just framing that because I think that's something you know to kind of think about in the back of our mind and the, and the way in which we are able to compare ourselves to other societies and other societies to each other. You know, all of that is remarkably new in real time, as well as the fact that our tendency to want to make insta conclusions, right? The sprint rather than the marathon aspect of all this has equally been a problem because we wanted to make conclusions. You know, Sweden got it totally wrong or the United States got it totally wrong or China got it totally right. And all of those are just moments in time. Uh, and maybe those are the right conclusions. So my question, I think, for the two of you to begin, because it is at least part of the mix as we are having this discussion and likely part of the mix when people are listening to this discussion, is that there is an emerging sense that whatever this Whatever a pandemic is, that that phase of whatever COVID is and will be is transitioning into something other than a pandemic. First of all, do, do either of you agree with that? Do the words even matter? <laughs> Meaning, does it matter whether we call this one thing versus the other? Is the challenge the same? And is that also, is the very fact that that proclamation, I think we're recording this on a day when Anthony Fauci has said that we're exiting the pandemic phase. We are certainly right now in this country out of the pandemic phase. Namely, we don't have 900,000 new infections a day and tens and tens and tens of thousands of hospitalizations and thousands of deaths. We are at a low level right now. So if you're saying, are we out of the pandemic phase in this country? We are. Is the very need to like, you know, create these moments in time, codify them and and put them in neat little boxes itself, an issue in terms of how we deal with these things. So Nicholas, what do you think? For me, it's looking at the history of plagues and uh, looking at the history of respiratory pandemics. So plagues going back thousands of years and records regarding respiratory pandemics going back at least 100, in some cases, 300 years. I actually think there are phases of pandemics. And I, I think we are you know, we're not approaching the beginning of the end of this pandemic, but we are approaching the end of the beginning. And I like to think of these pandemics as having three phases. And, and honestly, we were talking before we started recording about uh, logging the accuracy of people's predictions. Here's a case where I would like to take a win, where in October, <laughs> in October of 2020, I said there are going to be three phases, and we're going to be in the first phase until 2022, and this is exactly what's happening. So the first phase of the pandemic is when we feel the biological and epidemiological shock of the virus as this new pathogen has an ecological release and spreads and spreads and spreads among us until we reach herd immunity, which um, ideally one does through vaccination. But in the pre-vaccine era, uh, we would reach this nat so-called naturally by death. People would die and those who survived would be immune. And then the disease will become endemic. Uh, and in parallel to that, often the pathogens would evolve to be more benign with time. This is a theory, but it's is often true because from the point of view of the germ, it doesn't, quote, want to kill us. Killing us is inefficient from the germ's point of view. It would rather sicken us and have us be ambulating and infecting others. Those variants of the pathogen that do that come to predominate. So for those two reasons, eventually the pandemic becomes endemic and then plateaus and the epidemic force is nullified, and that's the opening act, the initial phase. And then we enter the intermediate phase of the pandemic, which in this case, I think, will last from 2022 to around 2024, which is when we clean up the mess, the clinical, social, psychological, and economic aftershocks of the virus. It's like a tsunami washes ashore, and the water spreads inland, causing destruction, and eventually that stops, and the water recedes, which is great, but now we've got to clean up the mess. And I think that's the phase we're entering now, five times as many people as die of the pandemic will be chronically ill from this, will have some kind of disability approximately. Those people will need clinical care. Our healthcare system will need to deal with them. We'll have 
millions of people who are bereaved and millions of people who lost their jobs, children. We're going to be catching up with the educational deficits of children for a very long time to come. And I think that'll take that intermediate phase will take a couple of years until 2024, approximately. And then finally, we'll enter the post-pandemic phase, which I think is going to be a little bit of a party, like the roaring 20s of the 21st century, like the roaring 20s of the 20th century. I think people will will relentlessly seek out social interactions, will spend their money liberally. I think we're going to have an efflorescence of the arts and so on. So I think that's very typical. And I think we are actually following that uh, that path. And I'll say one more thing and then I'll shut up. And I think that that all is pro- uh, with a proviso that we do not have the emergence of new, more worrisome strains of the virus. That if we were to have new strains that were materially more deadly or materially evaded the vaccines, which I put at between one and 10% chance of that happening, then all bets are off. Everything I just said won't happen. We'll be back to square one, I think, in terms of coping with the uh, epidemic. So, so yes, I actually think we are transitioning to a new phase of the pandemic right now here in early 2022. Yeah, I think uh, I don't have a crystal ball the way Nick does. I think he, he he's predicting all the way to the end of the decade. Um, I'm nowhere near. So 2024, Zeke, give me a, until I, 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 I you're, already, you're already in 2026. <laughs> no, I said to 2024. And uh, anyway, I said this two years ago and it's been happening as predicted, but go on. Um, I do think that we are, uh, we're in a phase transition. How long that transition takes you know, I think it's premature to say, you know, we're we're in the endemic state, um, and uh, in part, I hesitate because um, of Omicron. You know, we were all focused on Delta and focused on, and, and then uh, literally out of left field, no one tracking it comes a completely different uh, viral variant that you know spreads much more rapidly, et cetera, and. Is that possible? You better believe it's possible again. And we just don't know. Uh, and we have a, a few Omicron variants, BA4, BA5, that could turn out to be problematic. And we have no idea how big that surge is going to be. You know, p- everyone, you know, sort of poo-poos Omicron compared to Delta, but lots more people got it. And as a consequence, you had a lot of hospitalization and death, even though per person, it's not as virulent. So you got to be a little, we have, and we did overwhelm systems and go into crisis levels of care. Um, So I'm a little hesitant to, uh, you know, declare victory so soon. Uh, We've been burned before. What I worry about, and and here I'm going to shift a little, is I think the kind of what we're experiencing now tells you something deep about human nature which is we can change and put ourselves in a pretzel and really redo our lifestyles, uh, but that can last only a few years. And then we have to, we bounce back. Uh, and the, the, the uh, you know, switch met- metaphors from pretzels to rubber bands, we have to go back into social life. We have to, um, and I think too, you know, I don't know what it is because I'm, I haven't, thought it through enough, but there, there's something biological about, you know, we can't have this sort of social isolation and all the other things that we've experienced and, and do it for more than two years without going batty. And I, you know, I'm not, it's true of me, you know, let, uh, last night, two nights ago, he had dinner on our porch with uh, 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 five other people. And it was like, wow, this is feeling so good <laughs> um, because, you know, regular conversation, people weren't crazy, you know, worried. And I think, I think, you know, whether the virus comports with us or not, people have to get back, are, are just so urgently having to get back to normal that I think even if we had a surge, it would be very hard to get people to adhere to any uh, public health precautions. Unless it was much deadlier, right? Like yeah. If, uh, yeah. If ten percent, if if the virus was killing, and see, this is the thing. This this plague, you know, our time in the crucible in twenty, in the twenty twenties with our pandemic in our lifetime, it's sort of a plague light, right? I mean, it's not the the smallpox or the cholera or the or the bubonic plague or the Ebola of other 
you know, historical periods or other groups, it's, you know, kills half a percent to 1% of the people. But if it mutated to kill 10%, I think there would be a lot of political will and interest to, um, you know, take more stringent measures again. I would say that's right. And even if it didn't go to 10%, if it went to 1%, but affected kids under 12, for example, yes, everything would change. Again, I agree with that. Hopefully we're not going to have, you know, such an event to occur. But given this discussion of we're not sure what variants are going to do, you know, we're we're hoping that the variants are going to continue to be milder and not be something like, you know, the killer effectiveness of Ebola. Um, But if something pops up that uh, is truly nerve wracking, um, you know, Nicholas, you mentioned before it could happen. Where are we? Not so much from a cultural perspective of the willingness to go back into extreme measures, but more from a public health perspective in terms of the infrastructure and even such things as herd immunity and vaccination. Like, where are we as far as dealing with that? Are we in a good place? Are we in a medium place? Are we in a terrible place? I would say we're in a bad place (laughs) where, well, where bad means we have not had an opportunity to build up the public health infrastructure appropriately, either from a surveillance standpoint or an intervention standpoint. We've undercut the trust in the public health system. And third, we have a a completely exhausted, burned out, uh, demoralized, both public health workforce and healthcare workforce. So I actually think if, if somehow there were another onslaught, we would be in bad shape. Um, and uh, we'd be, we're, we're already to some degree running on fumes and we would really be, uh, you know, people would be squeezing the last bit of, of uh, uh, adrenaline out of their uh, adrenal glands, um, but you couldn't sustain it for a marathon. I agree with everything Zeke just said. And I would only just add that, the one area where we are better prepared uh, is in the mRNA and adenovirus vaccine technology. So I think for this, you know, if, assuming that the rapid uh, prototyping and invention of new vaccines for new variants takes place, which I think is a good bet, and assuming that those uh, vaccines are effective – Uh, We got incredibly lucky with the first batch of vaccines that had these 95% effectiveness rates. I mean, most doctors are delighted with vaccines that have 70% effectiveness rates. The the Chinese vaccines had 65% effectiveness, and people were happy with that. Uh, So we got incredibly lucky. So assuming that we can do it, which is likely, and assuming it works, which is unclear, uh, that's different and to our credit and, you know, might help us. But I agree 100% with what Zeke said about the burnout and the and the uh, still the lack of preparedness. Plus, one more thing, with the war in Ukraine, the ongoing supply chain disruptions, it's unclear we'll be, you know, let's say we had to tool up to start making something, tests of a, with particular reagents or more masks or whatever the hell it is that we need to make to combat the virus. It's really unclear if a global supply chains will allow us to do that again. So it's, it's I'm concerned. But this also, the, the, this goes back to the other thing which, I'd say of all the things that keep me up at night, um, this is one of them, which is the urge by American society to move on and and the urge to not devote the resources. And we've seen this in Congress, not devote the resources, the attention to fixing the problems that exacerbated and made this pandemic so much worse. And again, putting in the right infrastructure for surveillance, putting in a better public health effector arm so that we could go to uh, isolated, vulnerable communities with community health care workers on and on. You know, we have the tendency to, you know, I'm done with that. And done means I'm not paying attention. And the solutions we put into place other than the mRNA, because it's been so hugely profitable and incredibly impressive, we haven't put the infrastructure in place in addressing the problem. You know, we could upgrade in indoor air quality and God willing, we will. And that would be an infrastructure change that would be really positive for respiratory viruses. Uh, maybe we'll put in some aspects of surveillance, better synchronized or coordinated wastewater surveillance that's standardized. But the the whole gamish that we really need uh, yeah, I, I, I'm. I, you know, I've thought a lot about what we need, but I'm. I'm skeptical 
America's got the attention span to do it, frankly. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote. Nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) We we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. The coronavirus continues to spiral out of control in the U.S., but around the world, many countries have nearly beaten the virus or avoided it altogether. So many countries acted quickly and used various containment strategies to mitigate the spread, something health experts say the U.S. can learn from. CNN's Max Foster reports from England. For every 100,000 Americans, at least 40 are dead, and the number of new cases is soaring. Meanwhile, many parts of the world have either recovered or avoided the brunt of the pandemic altogether. Sazik, you wrote a little more than two years ago about assessing the world's best healthcare systems. (laughs) And if you'd looked at your book then and countries that have done well since... There's a pretty good correlation there. I mean, you sort of looked at Germany, you looked at Taiwan, you looked at Switzerland. You know, not all those. Switzerland probably didn't do as well. Uh, Taiwan obviously did exceedingly well. And I I guess my question for both of you, and something I thought about during this, is as much as we are, certainly as Americans, and we are in this particular conversation, American, although Emma's in Greece, Nicholas, you're, you know, have have that heritage. We all have a different background. But let's sort of say, like, there's a lot of commentary that says America did this well and that well or that badly and other countries did better. If you really stepped back, you know, if you were the proverbial Martian looking at the human race, the societies that did, at least at this moment in time, a bit better in managing both death and cases and social cohesion tended to be either islands, uh, communitarian, or authoritarian. Full stop. Well, I don't Uh, know about authoritarian. I said tended to be one of those. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree. We're not sure, right. And maybe we don't know how China ended up doing. Um, I mean, I would say Singapore has an authoritarian, communitarian quality. So let's, that's, this is a, another episode of what could go right. That's a strength, you know, when you need people to behave collectively, when you need them to do what they're told, when you need them to do all these things. Do you really feel there's a way in which a society can simultaneously have those strengths and also have the strengths of a messy, angry, chaotic, but often vibrant, innovative democracy? I mean, doesn't some of what we've screwed up? is also the things that, in, in a different set of circumstances, we excel? So, Zach, uh, I would say, um, you know, the, the example you're looking for uh, probably is Israel, right? Talk about messy, chaotic, you know, uh, where, you know, cacophony is the order of the day. And they have a lot of political divisions, a very strong right-left division, but I would say there are good studies and, um, that, you know, societal trust 
was the key uh, ingredient. And um, America, for almost all of its history, had huge cacophony, but had a lot of societal trust. You know, political cacophony, cultural cacophony, but trust can go together. We don't have that at the moment. And we have a, uh, I, I fear greatly, an institutional structure that is uh, ripping and undermining any possibility of trust. Um, and that's, I think, a large part of why we did poorly. I don't think it was our political cacophony, our cultural diversity. I mean, we had a lot of that cultural diversity at other times, but we had, we had a lot of trust, which we don't have now. So I would say that I think besides Ireland, which I do think there's a strong element of that um, communitarian, I think what works is the, is the trust element here. And, and I think that's where we have fallen down. Um, now, there are many things that have contributed to it, but I would put uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Fox News um, at the center of uh, the process. I think Jonathan hates article um, is, a, it, it, you know, it's not the definitive word, but I think it's a very good and insightful thing worth reading. Zeke's referring, of course, to the widely read recent Jonathan Haidt article in The Atlantic about why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid. That's the title of the article, not my characterization of it. The other question that pertains, given that you've looked at the history of plagues and how societies have dealt with is, I don't know. Have we actually done that badly? I mean, it's it, relative to most of human history. Maybe we actually did pretty well. We just underperformed what we actually could have done in the present. I don't know. I mean, the United States definitely has underperformed. Um, you know, our per capita death rate is three times Canada's. Uh, it's about uh, 10 or 20 times South Korea's. Uh, these are populations of, you know, broadly similar wealth and similar age structure. You know, the fact that Kenya might have a lower death rate than us is is not as impressive because, you know, their median age is 18 or something. Our median age is in the 30s. Uh, and this virus, you know, kills the elderly much more. So, um, you know, uh, we have underperformed. And then if you just look at the intrinsic infectiousness and intrinsic inf – uh, so intrinsic infectiousness is measured by the r naught and the intrinsic um, infection fatality rate of the pathogen, which is a you know, God-given property of the virus, that's how it emerged, uh, and you just did a little envelope calculation on how many Americans would have died, um, we probably have maybe half as many Americans if they've died. About a million Americans have died so far. Maybe as many as two million would have died if it had just ripped through our population. We'd done absolutely nothing, you know, if it had been medieval times or something. Uh, but even that, two million deaths, uh, even that with two million deaths, which is bad, is all is less than one percent of our total population. So I go back to the thing I said earlier. We're actually lucky in a way that because of our incompetence, that uh, we are facing a kind of plague light. Now, one more thing, and then I'll shut up. In a way, this virus was almost perfectly calibrated, quite apart from the social dynamics that paved the way for the virus to harm us, the way Zeke just spoke about. Uh, the virus had its own biological dynamics that paved the way for it to harm us with exquisite precision because it was just deadly enough to really harm us, but not deadly enough to galvanize us to really do what we needed to do to respond to it. Um, and the virus had a number of other properties as well, which clouded the public health response. Zeke mentioned a moment ago that, you know, the, the trust in, in public health institutions in general and in public health actors in particular has been low, partly self-injury, self right? Like that we've not been as uh, forthright with the public. And, uh, and here by here, I don't mean mistakes. I mean, public health experts, scientists make mistakes. That's okay. But we could educate the public about that. Say like, if I change my mind, I told you that this wasn't good, but now I'm doing something different because new facts have come in. That's the way science works. Obviously, when you're dealing with, with, with with something that's changing in real time, that's really the nature of science. You, you look at the data and the information you have at any given time, and you make a decision with regard to policy based on that information. As the information changes, then you have to be flexible enough and humble enough to be able to change how you think about things. 
we've been able to educate the public about how science works, and if we had been able to articulate our reservations, the limitations in our knowledge, all along the way, I think we would have preserved credibility uh, better. And um, and if we had been able to tamp down a little bit on some of the charlatans among us, uh, this would have helped. Anyway, the point I'm making is that bad as this virus is, it's not sufficiently bad that uh, you know we took it as seriously as we could. We were hampered by the public health credibility and institutional limitations. So we did we did pretty bad, I would say, you know, uh, if in my judgment. Yes, I think we we did. And I, and I some people said, well, what about Germany or England? You know, they also did poorly. And I'm not particularly jingoistic, but you know, I expect more from the United States of America. Uh, you know, I mean, and we had the great misfortune, and I don't think for some listeners, maybe this will strike them as political, but I don't think it is. I think we had the great misfortune in the previous occupant of the White House, you know, honestly did a terrible job. Now, so did some Democratic governors. I don't think Cuomo or, or de Blasio did a good job in New York City, and I was saying it at the time. But the president, Donald Trump, was appallingly incompetent as this pandemic was bearing down on us, not preparing the nation, not, not, not getting ventilators, not buying PPE. Uh, friends of mine were taking care of patients with, in garbage bags. I mean, it was ridiculous not preparing the nation morally uh, and, you know, sort of practically saying, you know, here's what's going to happen. Here's what we need to do. We need to work together to confront it. None of that was done. Instead, we were told it's going away, it's going away, it's going away, which which was a lie and uh, which was known to be a lie to any expert. And in fact, it was known to be a lie to the president. We now know that the NSA briefed him back in December of, 20, of 2019 that this was a gathering threat. And certainly experts in the CDC, all my friends, all my epidemiology friends in January of 2020 knew what was going to happen. And, and I'll say one more thing. Um, I remember in January of 2020, I was sitting here at the desk I'm talking to you from now, pulling my hair out, probably like Zeke, and saying, why aren't people more concerned? Uh, everyone I'm talking to is very concerned, but the, the politicians aren't concerned. The public isn't concerned. Zeke doesn't have a lot of hair to pull out. Well, he can pull out the sides. I can pull out, you know, like, you know, it's like we can work on Two that. years ago. Yeah, exactly. Two years ago, there was more to pull out. That's why it's gone. But the point is, I was sitting here at my desk saying, how is it possible that I, Nicholas Christakis, know more about what's going to happen than the president of the United States? This makes no sense. And in fact, he did know and did nothing. And I think, you know, that is a... I think hundreds of thousands of Americans, we, we would have lost 300,000 or half a million Americans, I think, no matter what we did. But I think we definitely had a several hundred thousand deaths can be laid at his feet, in, in my judgment. President Trump tonight insisted he did not lie to the American people, despite what he told Bob Woodward wow. about intentionally playing down the threat posed by coronavirus. I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic. On February 7th, he told Woodward the virus was more deadly than the worst flus. It goes through air, Bob. That's always tougher than the touch. You know, the touch, you don't have to touch things, right? But the air, you just breathe the air. and That's how it's uh, passed. It's also more deadly than your... You know, your, even your strenuous flus. Three weeks later, he told the American people something different. But that's a little bit like the flu. It's a little like the regular flu that we have flu shots for. I, I really think, doctor, you want to treat this like you treat the flu, right? And, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be. Today, I asked him to explain. Why did you lie to the American people and why should we trust what you have to say that's now? That's a terrible question and the phraseology. I didn't lie. What I said is we have to be calm, we can't be panicked. So can I respectfully disagree with Nick on this one point, and I don't think the larger point we do disagree on, which is the problem of having this pandemic occur when Donald Trump is president is that Donald Trump is a divider, not a uniter. If we had a president who was a uniter, um, and I will think of, you know, John Kennedy or Bill Clinton as those kind of presidents. Uh, we might have had an opportunity to take this pandemic and bring the country together and overcome the cultural uh, divisions we were having. That the president uh, at the time, uh, Donald Trump, uh, has no such instinct. His entire 
modus his whole life has been as a uh, taking advantage by dividing. Um, and, and that cost the country, I think Nicholas is 100% right, that cost the country three, four, five hundred thousand additional deaths. And it's terrible. Uh, and not to mention all the other, you know, the, the many larger number of cases, the large number of long COVID and all the other stuff that it caused. And, uh, you know, it, again, a huge missed opportunity. I do wonder exactly how much Trump was the, the cherry on top, just for instance, you know, thinking about Greece, the prime minister right now, Mitsotakis, is not a divider. He's not a Trump type of guy, but there's very low levels of social trust in Greece, and Greece has also done poorly. So just, just to gently push back on, like, how are we to know how much blame to lay at the feet of Donald Trump if you're already in an environment where, you know, trust in the media, trust in the government is low? Combined with the, you know, the outcomes in 2021, which, yes, no one expected Omicron to come with the virulence that it did. I mean, the virulence in terms of infectiousness, not necessarily virulence in terms of mortality. But it's not like the United States magically did really well in 2021. Now you could say, look, the, the, the cake had been baked or the ingredients had been put in place and therefore re- redirecting that magically in you know, February of 2021 on the heels of uh, political insurrection and in- incredible divisions would have been kind of impossible. You can't just like recreate social trust in a month. Uh, although societies are weirdly resilient and things actually do, as so you could use the rubber band analogy, sometimes snap back extraordinarily quickly. And we didn't do that in 2021. No, I, I think you're you're right. But I do think um, there are two things going in. One is I do think the divides were, were solidified in 2020. Remember, he was it was a whole year, exactly a year that he was in office. Um, and I will say the Biden administration came in with a game plan and, and they executed on the vaccines and did a really good job ramping it up. If they made a mistake, and I think they did, it was putting all their chips. They were at the roulette table and they put all their chips on vaccine and they should have diversified the portfolio more. And I think that that I think was their fundamental mistake. You know, all their chips may be a little exaggeration. They had a few chips in other places, but they didn't have lots of chips in other places. They thought if we get the vaccine out, we'll be uh, protected. Um, And it turned out not to be the case. Some of us sort of uh, uh, thought that was likely to be true. Um, And um, anyway. I think I actually think there's a lot more to blame Donald Trump and the kind of environment he created and fostered, you know, his resistance to coming out and say saying to people that he got vaccinated. It would have changed everything if if the if he had done it on TV. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you and work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government.
Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. The Justice Department is now appealing that Trump-appointed judge's decision to overturn the mask mandate on public transportation. In a brief statement, the DOJ said, in light of today's assessment by the CDC that an order requiring masking in the transportation corridor remains necessary to protect the public health, the department has filed a notice of appeal. For now, passengers will be able to continue traveling without masks. I want to quote from one of your colleagues, Zeke, uh, Michael Osterholm, who, I don't know if this is a quote from him per se, but it's a quote from the report that the University of Minnesota put out on kind of looking at mask and efficacy of masks, which came out at the end of 2020. And for those people who are not aware, Michael Osterholm is, you know, as I think you'd agree, Zeke, has, has been as much a COVID hawk as any human who's been in the public realm. Uh, but the conclusion of this was it should be well known by now that wearing cloth face coverings or surgical masks, universal or otherwise, has a very minor role to play in preventing person-to-person transmission. It is time to stop overselling their efficacy and unrealistic expectations about their ability to end the pandemic, uh, which seems a rather unequivocal conclusion. And it doesn't speak to whether or not there should have been and should in the future be a universal K95 or, you know, a high quality mass mandate that is then enforced. Zeke is waving his N95. <laughs> I'm waving the N95. First of all, I think, um, uh, you know, the CDC has got masking wrong from day one. And uh, I think has done a very great disservice to the country, unfortunately, on masking by not saying um, that uh, aerosol spread was the method of spread and that we could do a better job and then say, well, we got to preserve all these masks for the healthcare workers. The fact is there is a progression of the quality of masks from, uh, you know, nothing to cloth, to surgical masks, to KN95s, uh, to N95s and N95s that are fitted. If both people are wearing high quality N95 masks, right? And one of them's infected, They can be in the same area for about six hours, right? On the other hand, if both are wearing nothing, it's about 15 minutes. (laughs) That makes a huge difference, right? And if I'm wearing an N95, but you're not, and you're wearing nothing, right? I can be near you for an hour before transmission is likely to happen. So the quality of mask is definitely there. And again, the CDC was slow in recommending masks and slow in recommending and emphasizing quality matters. Cloth is really, I won't say worthless, but well nigh worthless. Surgical's slightly better, but because of the way they put the loops around the ear, it opens up for transmission. You really need a good 90 N95 with a thing around the nose, and you can buy them NIAS certified, uh, produced in the United States. They're not that expensive and the government can send them all out. It does go back to this question that we were talking about in the beginning of, you know, moving into the intermediate phase, the pandemic, or, you know, Fauci calling it moving out of the pandemic phase of the appetite. How long are we expected to wear KN95 masks out and about in our daily life? Like until when would we do that under, you know, scientifically ideal circumstances, I guess would be the question. Well, I I don't, I think I'd like to, answer that question indirectly, which is to bring up this whole notion of the Swiss cheese model of uh, pandemic defense. And this is a model advanced by James Reason in about 30 years ago to talk about the breakdown of complicated socio-technical systems like nuclear power or medical error, one of the classic applications to medical error. Why, why are patients injured in hospitals? And it's usually a breakdown of multiple fail-safe systems. So each system is good, but not perfect. And he developed this model of a so-called Swiss cheese model, which is you have different layers of defense. Each of them has a few holes uh, in in them. And these holes are randomly situated in the piece of cheese and of random size. And you should have the intuition that if you stack up three or four pieces of Swiss cheese by the third or fourth slice, none of the holes will align and you'll get an impermeable barrier by the time you have four pieces of Swiss cheese stacked, let's say. 
So one layer is not enough. So when you can think about everything we do to respond to the virus as a piece of Swiss cheese, vaccination is a layer, school closure is a layer, border closure is a layer, testing is a layer, masking is a layer, um, a, a quarantine procedures is a layer, and every one of these is a layer, and no one layer is enough. So vaccination is great, but we all know vaccination is 95% effective. It's fantastic, the mRNA vaccines, but not 100%. So, uh, so maybe... Uh, you know, uh, people might want in this intermediate period to use some additional precautions. So, for example, Zeke earlier said he met with his friends outdoors to have a meal. That's a good. Everyone's vaccinated. You have an outdoor meal. You've got you've got that extra layer of ventilation. You got vaccination. You got high ventilation because you're outdoors. That's probably enough, actually, to protect you adequately. It doesn't reduce the risk to zero, but it's good enough. So the answer to the masking would be. If you're using a good mask, and, and Zeke just summarized the, the, the literature quite well, I thought, uh, you know, if, if you're vaccinated and you're uh, getting out of your car to pump gas, I don't think you need to put your mask on. Uh, if you're going into a rock concert with 10,000 people you don't know, uh, then, you know, you might want to put your mask on. I mean, it's, you know, it just depends is the way I would put it. So my, my, my pushback to that would be uh, last week and the week before, in Coachella, California, which admittedly was outside, you had, I don't know, 250,000 people in a densely, dancey, druggy, Bacchanalian, Saturnalian haze. I'm sorry, that, and you were there? No, I was in Los Angeles at the Los Angeles Times Book Festival, which was okay. a non-drunken, non-bunken, <laughs> non-Saturnalian, but had 150,000 people. And... Mask use uh, is, was, was not high on the list of things, things that people thought was essential to their attire. Much more at the book festival, which makes sense given the demographic, yes. uh, and much less at Coachella, which probably also makes sense given the demographic. And I guess the question is, a lot of this, the Swiss cheese analogy is, is, the, is a brilliant one, and I think you've used it before, and I think it's, it's absolutely the one to keep in mind. Uh, the, the problem with the mask debate from my perspective has been it's a little like um, the, the abstinence debate. There's no question that abstinence works, but it doesn't work as social policy because people don't behave that way. There's no question that universally enforced high-quality masking in all indoor settings at all times from early 2020 would have been a massively advantageous thing for all societies, right? Universal, high-quality masking in all interactive situations all the time. Full stop. But given that human beings don't behave that way, again, back to the absence analogy, and that COVID, particularly in Omicron, was so unbelievably contagious that it was much like if you don't use it universally, it's like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but the analogy I've used is it would be like saying it's a good idea to use an umbrella when it's raining, but if it's a torrential rain and you go out 10 times and you use your umbrella eight times, you still get completely soaked. You know, meaning it didn't doesn't matter that the that you used it the eight times. It matters that you didn't use it the two times. Well, wait, 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 wait a second. First of all, I think we did not tailor the public health interventions we did to the circumstance and do what Nick said. If we were doing what Nick said, you know, you can probably see in the background my uh, uh, HEPA filter back there, right? right? We would have HEPA filters running indoors. We have good data uh, now from uh, Edinburgh's hospital in Cambridge about the efficacy in taking uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus out of the air uh, by HEPA filters. And we would upgrade. Um, uh, that's the first thing. Uh, so that we reduce that element of transmission. And then masks right in the right circumstances would be advantageous. And when you said society doesn't work that way, that is false, right? American society with lots of cacophony about my rights, but have you ever been in South Korea or Japan in the winter seasons? Everyone's wearing a mask. You're the oddball if you're not wearing the mask. And what happens then, Zach? You wear the mask. Even if you don't like it, you wear the mask because none of us, well, I won't say none of us, but many of us don't like being the oddball. There are some of us who like being the oddball, but that's a minority and we can deal with that minority. Part of the problem is, is the polarization that we put around masks and the bad information that we 
uh, a hat. So I, you know, again, I think that if, if I had to do one thing on the transmission side of the world, it would not be focusing on mass. It would be focusing on air, indoor air quality and really souping it up between this and uh, UVC lights. Uh, that'll make a big difference. It'll make a huge difference. I think one of the legacies of the pandemic may in fact be a new paradigm of clean indoor air. Just like I had, hope so. Just like we had clean indoor water a century ago. You know, you you expect when you go to a public building that the water that you drink out of the faucets will be clean. Uh, but that's a legacy of public health interventions 100 years ago. And I think that we may see that increasingly, uh, especially if we get another pandemic in the next 10 years I think the public may say enough is enough and uh, be willing to commit resources uh, to it. Or unless the cost of outbreaks, I think we're at the point now where firms have not seen or calculated or seen adverse enough impacts on their employees or their customers from outbreaks at firms to make it worth their while. You know, if you're a restaurant that goes out of business because you're pasted in the local news because there was a COVID outbreak, uh, you know, you might say, hey, maybe I should spend some money and get this uh, device. Um, or if your employees are constantly missing work because they're getting sick at the office, you might find that economic calculus to work. I don't necessarily think we're there yet, but but I think we we may get there. I'd like to go back just for a moment to the, the social trust and the misinformation conversation. I mean, I, I think there's certainly no denying that there is a huge social trust and misinformation problem in the United States. But I was wondering what you would both think of there being another side to the story about that, which is just that, for instance, you know, Nicholas mentioned prior in the conversation something about the R not with the virus. Two years ago, I would have zero percent knowledge of what he was talking about. Now I have like I'm 80 percent reasonably sure that like I know what he meant. And I have no absolutely no background in science. I'm just a you know normal lay person. And I think there are really large swaths of the American public that, despite the people that fell prey to misinformation, despite you know viewers of certain TV networks out there, we all now have a, a stronger public education in science and and a sort of direct access to scientists in a way that we haven't had previously. Is there a positive to that? Because I feel like that's not sort of well discussed. So I would say uh, one of the things it does uh, do is highlight the absolute terrible science education and biology education that educated people like yourself have gotten and can get and can graduate college with. You know, I, I, I'm actually, I think, Nick, Nicholas, you're a University of Chicago product. Uh, well, no, I was, I went to Harvard Medical On the faculty. Yeah, on the faculty, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think there's a like a core of, of, of uh, uh, education we all ought to have. And knowing something about uh, the biological world, including evolution and how it might work at the viral level, would have been really important had people just had that and understood that like the way they understand two plus two. And by the way, it doesn't require complicated math. I mean, there are some ways in which it requires complicated math, but it doesn't all require complicated math. In any case, um, I, I think it, it we have gotten educated and you're right. People know what r naught is. People understand about viral variants. We understand about mutations better. Um, but you know, we should be getting that in high school and college, I think, as standard fare. And the fact that, I don't know, it's now 160 years after publication of uh, On the Origin of the Species, uh, we still have lots of people who don't understand evolution and don't understand it at, you know, sort of basic DNA molecular level. It's 60 years since publication of the uh, double helix paper in, in, in uh, um, we, we, we can, we, we should be doing better in this kind of education, which is really important for people to understand, to be facile in the conversation of the kind of things that are are affecting our society. So Zeke, that is a perfect segue into an issue that I've wanted to get into, and that is the question of public health messaging and public health messaging during the pandemic in a way that we need to learn something about, particularly if Nicholas is right, that, look, we could be facing this in 10 years and this could get worse. And I, I felt, as someone who is, look, credentialed but not credentialed in those areas, that there has been a kind of a, 
a dangerous cult of expertise that was certainly fostered within the media, that there are different levels of expertise. Nicholas, you've got a PhD in medicine. Sorry, you've got an MD in medicine and a PhD. There's a difference in, like, I have no idea how to create an mRNA virus, and most people who are not steeped in uh, biochemistry do either. But being able to read and understand statistical analysis, which is part of what epidemiology is, you know, there are a wide swath of people who have that kind of expertise. You know, that is not limited to you have to have a degree in epidemiology. And the degree to which we siloed inputs into how do we collectively decide what we collectively are going to be doing, and that if you didn't have X letters after your name, you were therefore not allowed to have an informed view, I think made it very difficult. I mean, it made made it very difficult to steer a collective public policy. I mean, is there something to be learned from that? Am I wrong in that? Well, I think um, I would say two things about that. I, I don't know what you mean by a cult of expertise. I mean, that was rhetorical and probably hyperbolic, but I was meant to spur a conversation. Uh, no, but I think um, there is expertise in our society. In fact, that's how all e- e- economies have been organized almost since we invented cities 8,000 years ago. You know, uh, there's a famous saying in sociology that uh, one man's occupation is comprised of another man's uh, disasters, emergencies. You know, when 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 you have a when your when your hot water heater breaks in your house and your basement is flooding, it's an emergency for you and you you know urgent. But for the plumber that comes to your house to fix it, it's his routine bread and butter, and you're delighted to pay the plumber money to fix the problem. Same with the car mechanic. Same with the cabinet maker. Same with an infectious disease doctor. Same with a lawyer. Same with everything. That's how our whole economy is organized: the exchange of of goods and services manufactured by people with specialized knowledge uh, in the division of labor. And so, and the same holds for epidemiology and knowledge about infectious disease and medical history. I mean, we are a a wealthy uh, 21st century democracy with institutions where there are people who have devoted their lives to studying the history of epidemics or epidemiology or vaccinology or virology or immunology, all of these people who have deep expertise in these areas. So, the, the cult of experts, so I'm delighted that we have them and we're lucky as a rich nation to have such people and to live at a time when we've accumulated all this knowledge, which we can deploy to save our lives. The challenge is, is to educate the public to the, to the inexorable reality that scientists don't always agree, that there are experts, but they sometimes disagree. And that's okay, too. Right. And so the, the, the and this is where we failed. What we could have done or should have done is said, look, there are some topics about which the experts are in consensus. And not only that, don't just take their word for it. Here's the evidence that they can adduce to support this claim, which you as a lay person can access. Say, OK, they are all saying the same thing. And here's why they're saying it. You know, I'm going to believe them. Or hear experts who disagree, here's why they disagree, and now unfortunately you either have to pick who you're going to put your trust in or make your own mind up about it. But you should not lose confidence in the notion of expertise as a result. You know, that's like if me saying, okay, well, one mechanic said this is the problem with my car and another mechanic said this is the problem, therefore there's no such thing as auto mechanics. That's false. There is actually a reality of how the car works. It's just these two experts happen to disagree on this occasion. And so this is one of the things I think that political leaders could have done and should have done. And it gets back to the point that Zeke made earlier about how we don't have a kind of consensus capacity, you know, kind of a capacity as a society to put our trust in particular institutions. And so anyway, that's my answer to the expertise uh, uh, question. Look, we all w- rely on expertise, whether we're willing to acknowledge it or not, right? Um, and we rely on it in all sorts of ways. Uh, and so I, I think it, it's just a fact. And, you know, mostly experts agree on 90, 95%. And at the cutting edge, the bleeding edge, there is going to be disagreement where we don't have clear data, where... We haven't experienced this before, where this is a coronavirus pandemic. Um, there's going to be uncertainty, and uncertainty is going to manifest itself in different interpretations of data, different recommendations, etc. In any case, um, I do think we have to have expertise, and unfortunately, we know. And this is like old as old can be in America, right? We're suspicious of experts. 
Um, we poo-poo experts. You know, this was true in Ben Franklin's time. Uh, one of the reasons he was never respected in America as a scientist is because we were suspicious of experts and, and viewed them as elites. And, um, uh, and so that suspicion waxes and wanes. And we're in one of those populist moments where, you know, we have more of it and it, it, it's uh, to our detriment. Um, I, I don't think our moments when we're suspicious of expertise are moments of great success. Um, they almost always end badly, like the Jackson era ending in the 1837 terrible uh, recession, a very prolonged recession, because he got rid of the federal bank. Look, you've both given a brilliant, and I, I mean that actually, brilliant defense of the, the vital role of expertise. I was, though, also talking about the degree to which uh, expertise does not preclude non-experts having profoundly meaningful- Totally agree with that. Right. One of the great things, one of the things we call for in our roadmap was more public disclosure of the underlying data so anyone can actually analyze it and come up with insights. And we've seen in this case, lots of people who aren't, weren't experts in viral uh, spread or epidemiology coming up with brilliant insights. And by the way, I believe, you know, one of the good examples to support your point, Zach, is the Netflix competition to come up with a better algorithm for predicting what people would like when it was run way back when, the, the winning team had no expertise in that particular area. They just happened to be really smart people who could develop models and had statistical and modeling capacities. And I think there are lots of things in society where if we put out the data and let people play with the data, obviously with you know protections, absolutely, we would get fantastic insights from those. So Zeke and and Nicholas, it was wonderful to speak to you. Maybe perhaps uh, in another conversation, we can get to what Nicholas was talking about, the Gilded Age, the the Roaring Twenties, what's coming after the Intermediate Phase, because that sounds a lot more fun than what we're going through now. But for what we are going through now, I hope that we can heed the advice that both of you have given to us during this hour. And um, we will certainly find out what's going to happen. Fingers crossed. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great. Thanks. So, Emma, I feel like that was one of those conversations, even more than the other conversations, that needed like another four hours. And <laughs> uh, there were all these other questions I wanted to get into that we didn't get into. The expertise one leading into, you know, we. We've collected so much data and information about who's sick and who dies and who doesn't and who's hospitalized and which we don't do for anything else in our lives to the degree that we do with uh, COVID. And I wonder if it creates like that in and of itself because it's so out of context with everything else, right? We don't, I don't have a dashboard of flu cases and automobile deaths and <laughs> heart disease and heart attacks and multiple forms of cancer, all of which are quite lethal and all of which we could probably do a lot more to reduce the lethality of. So I wondered about that, you know, the degree to which we have so much awareness of this particular thing, but the flip side of that is we are much more focused on the, the every modulation of threat. I think it's, there's this weird balance there between it's a tension I think that was actually throughout the whole conversation where it feels like scientists and experts and, and public health, you know, people in the public health realm are asking people to behave 100% objectively and rationally. And I think this is what you're pointing to with the absence analogy that people don't behave like that. They're guided a lot by emotion. And there is a very strong emotion that comes with, you know, looking online every day and seeing how many people have died of COVID, how many people are in the hospitals, the photos of, you know, bodies stacked up that was happening in New York in the early days. And that doesn't lead you to let me go through what everyone is saying and, and come to, you know, a good decision for myself that, that leads to something else. And so I still feel it's a little bit like if we're supposed to trust the experts, but the experts made a bunch of mistakes. And there's an enormous amount of information happening in a strongly emotive time. 
what are we supposed to do with that as sort of lay people, normal citizens? Of course, it's it is equally true that at this moment in time, and we're having this conversation in in the spring of 2022, um, on the heels of I've been to four or five different countries in the past month. I've been to France. I've been to Portugal. I've been to Saudi Arabia. I've been to Oman. Okay, don't make us I, jealous, Zachary. <laughs> yeah, this is this is uh, this is not like ooh, look at me. It's it's and the United States and and different regions in the United States and it is palpably true that whatever the reality of COVID is as a disease, the reality of human societies in relation to COVID has radically shifted from this is the the most significant threat confronting us today to this is not full stop. And that I mean that was the vibe in every single place I have been in. And the good thing about expertise, right, is that in any moment uh, there are multiple threats to our well-being individually and collectively. And it is a really good thing that there is a cohort of individuals who are attending to them. Like, it's really good that there's a lot of cybersecurity professionals trying to make sure networks aren't hacked by Russia or China or, or us at any given time so that I don't have to go through my life palpably worried about them, right? There's a, it's really good that there's people making sure the planes don't crash and go down the list. So. I love the fact that there are people like Zeke Emanuel and Nicholas Christakis who are thinking about these things and disseminating them and gaming out worst case scenarios. Like you want somebody to be prepared for worst case scenarios. It is equally true that our moment in time right now has moved beyond the palpable fear of those worst case scenarios at a collective level. I mean, individuals, individuals are and will continue to be all over the place in their risks, tolerance or fears. Uh, and I don't, I'm, I, I assume you, you you feel that in Greece. It's certainly true in New York. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. You know, I think human beings learning to live with a level of risk that was undesirable, unexpected, and, and to some degree not fully preventable is a good thing. Other people may not agree with that. So that's my pay on to we're, we're, we might be into the early roaring 2000s as a collective roaring 2020s a little more quickly than we thought. It's funny, that was the title of Alec Ross's book we had one of the first conversations with. So I'm going to leave it with the, this is a good moment in time to be having the conversation, albeit we may be in a really bad moment in four months or a much better one. I have no idea. We'll hope that we're not going to look back on this conversation and be like, <laughs> Ooh, that was a moment. Yeah. <laughs> But I think everyone's hoping along with us. And that's the, the point that you're making that there is a negative side to that if we're not preparing for what's coming in the future. But also, as a species, humanity has to be resilient. We have to be psychologically resilient because, you know, um, Zeke mentioned that, you know, we got through two years without getting too baddie. But actually, I think many of us went really baddie. Um, yes. It was hard, so we got it. We 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 do we do have to take steps forward, even as we prepare for the worst case, like you're saying. And that, at least, is something that can go right. If you want to find out more information about the Progress Network and what could go right, please visit our website at theprogressnetwork.org. And if you want something other than gloom and doom when you open your email in the morning, you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter. It's a roundup of progress news from around the world. And that's at theprogressnetwork.org slash newsletter. And please, if you like the show, if you could tell a friend, share an episode, leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, that would help us out a ton. What Could Go Right is hosted by Zachary Carabell and Emma Barber Lucas. The show is produced by Andrew Stephen and edited by Jordan Aaron, executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Pug Thank you so much for listening.